Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's I, I can finally say Happy New Year to you. On January, what's today? The 16th? Wow. I lost the first half of the month of January, sick with the flu, but I am so glad to be back and teaching. And glad to see you back as we start another year. We're going to start the third chapter of the book of First Thessalonians today. And uh, for those of you who are new, it's good to see you. I want to invite you to uh, catch up. The, uh, the book of First Thessalonians, while it's not a long book, we have five podcasts out there on it, six counting the overview of the book. Uh, the podcasts are uh, the recordings of these sessions together. The podcast is found on, it's called Forming the Spirit Within. It's found on my ministry page, bradreillyministries.org. And there's a little button at the top that says podcast. You can listen. So I invite you to do that and catch up with us. Today we're going to, there's an overview. There's three parts to chapter one. Chapter two is in one part. And today we'll do chapter three, I think, in one part. But before we get started, why don't you take out a prayer card? We have a prayer that we like to pray. I've got an extra one here. Let me throw one at you there, Alan. Um, anybody else need one? Okay. Okay, made some extras. You bet. Finally thought to make some extras. This is a prayer, interestingly enough, uh, I talk about it every now and then, that was... Uh, Credited to St. John Chrysostom, I'm actually going to be reading some of his stuff today, read his stuff many times in this class. Uh, He was the Bishop of Constantinople, the Archbishop of Constantinople, the Patriarch, uh, many titles, back in the early 300s. His name, Chrysostom, means the golden-mouthed orator. He's prolific in his sermons. He was a pastor at heart. And he wrote so many things that informed the early Christian faith. Um, <clears throat> and interestingly enough, I found some of his writings in two different uh, spots this time. Uh, even John R. W. Stott, an Anglican uh, Anglican theologian of the last century, recently deceased, uh, wonderful scholar of the Bible. He even quotes him, besides the ancient sources I use. And uh, we're going to talk this morning about the heart of Paul, the apostle. We really see his heart 
of ministry in this chapter three. And, and so we're going to begin. This is one of, this is a John Chrysostom's prayer. Uh, I didn't know that when I found it. I'd heard it a few times. And I found it. I kind of tweaked it, the wording just a little bit. God forgive me. Um, I think it was, you know, just try to make it a little bit more contemporary, but uh, I love it. It just prepares my heart to study God's word. So with that, let's pray it together. Illumine our hearts, O master lover of all humanity. With the pure light of your divine knowledge, open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing, the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies. And unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. I want to read all of chapter 3 with you, and then we'll talk about it. But let's listen. Remember... This chapter begins with the word, therefore, which causes us to call to mind the previous things he has said. He has been, in chapter 2, defending himself. Paul has been defending himself, his ministry, his ministry among them, why he had to leave, and now he is going to speak to them. He's He's gotten the news. Remember... The whole purpose of this letter, the first Thessalonian letter, was writing because he heard back from Timothy. Paul, Timothy, and Silas founded this church in Thessalonica. Then they had to leave because trouble was brewed up by all the local Greeks who were some Jews, some pagans, just did not want this message of Christ there. And they forced Paul out in the middle of the night. And they all had to leave. And in that context, they were yearning to know how was the church doing in their absence. Did it fall? Did it still hold faith? And so Paul sent Timothy back to find out after just a few months of being gone. And Timothy came back with news. And it's that news that spurred Paul to write this letter. This is his response to the news that he heard from Timothy. And so now we hear those direct thoughts right here. This is the news that Timothy brought back, chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's servant in the gospel of Christ, to establish you in your faith and to exhort you that no one be moved by these afflictions. You yourselves know that this is to be our lot. For when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent that I might know your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you 
and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we render to God for you? For all the joy which we feel for your sake before our God, praying earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And we would add, Amen. Amen. Because you can tell by those last two verses, 3, 11, 12, and 13, what is Paul doing? Praying. That's right. It just It spontaneously just flows from him that he begins to pray. He's so overwhelmed and so overjoyed. And so thankful at the news that Timothy has brought back that he can't help but pray for them. And it it almost sounds like that could be the end of a letter, you know, the end of a book, but he's not done yet. Uh, Chapter 4, we'll see a complete change in the letter. He began with an apology, meaning a a defense of the faith and explaining everything. First, chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 2... Uh, especially the apology in chapter 3 now, that the real pastor's heart is what we're going to see in the the Apostle Paul. And then 4, he's going to start teaching them. Chapters 4 and 5, he starts to, as he says here, kind of help them supply what's lacking in their faith. So let's think about this chapter with, there are three things that I think we discover here that are the good news. This is what Timothy brought back to them. And they're the three reasons why he wrote the letter. The three reasons that he wrote to them. He wanted to know what was going on. And the first one is, the first reason that he wanted to know what was going on is that he wanted to strengthen them. He wants to strengthen their faith. So we're going to talk about that this morning. The second thing is he wanted to be sure that they understood what was happening. They were suffering. Okay, let's try and put ourselves into the mind of where they were. Okay? Let's see if we can understand this. Somebody's planted, a, this new faith has come to us, and we've, they've planted a church, and we now have this community of brothers and sisters in Christ, and we love one another, and our leader, our pastor, our, our uh, you know, representative of Christ, he all of a sudden, the people in the town are coming and starting a riot, and they don't want that guy in their city anymore, and they run him off. And then they start persecuting the people in the church, making fun of them, maybe not giving them work to do, maybe uh, actually doing something physical. We don't know, but there's definitely persecution going on, suffering going on. And and how would we feel? How would we react as, as a people, as a as a sheep, if you are a flock of sheep. One thing we know about sheep, they need their shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd. If sheep don't have a shepherd, 
what happens? They're, they're, they're going to die because they're going to follow each other off a cliff or into a wolf's den or somewhere. They're just not, they're not able to care for themselves. They're a docile, lovable, uh, simple animal. That, and that's the animal that God has chosen to compare humanity to. You know, we're, we're just by ourselves, as smart as we think we are, we're just not all that smart sometimes, are we? <laughs> and, and we make some dumb mistakes. And we think, why do we do that? And uh, we need a shepherd. Jesus, we know, is the good shepherd. But in his good order, he gave apostles and pastors to be shepherds as well. And that word pastor literally means shepherd. So he wanted to make sure they understood suffering comes with being a sheep of Jesus Christ. You want to be a sheep in Jesus' flock? Guess what? Wolves are going to attack you. Don't fear, because we have a good shepherd, but it's, it's, it's going to happen. Number three, the third reason that he wrote this letter uh, is this book of 1 Thessalonians, is that desire to hear. Boy, did they make it? Did they hold up? Are they making it within our absence? But that's not his number one reason. It's definitely a reason. He wants to know what's going on, but it's not number one. It's really number three. The other two are more important to him, and that's why he spends the balance of the chapter the way he does. So as we look at the beginning to the end, kind of follow the structure of it, he begins by saying, we we couldn't bear it any longer. You know, uh, can we even relate to that? I mean, today, what would you do? You'd just pick up a phone and call. How's it going up there? You know, even send a letter, an email, instant, you know, we think of email as instant and text messaging, you know, but it's only as instant as quickly as the person responds. But, you know, they could write letters in those days, but, you know, it's just delivered by a slow boat, you know, and a slow donkey or whatever, you know, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't instant communication, so... He, he said, we can't bear it any longer. We've got to find out. So personal messenger, Timothy, you're elected. You go. You go find out. And he tells us here that that meant that we were willing to be left behind. Now, twice in this letter, Paul uses that phrase, couldn't bear it any longer. Follow the writing of the Apostle Paul. And it's kind of typical, actually, of that time and the epistle uh, form of writing. Oftentimes, people used the we when they meant I. The royal we is sometimes called, you know. And you see this. You, you can see it even in other places in the New Testament. So don't get confused there, because Paul is actually saying, even though it meant we were going to be left alone. If we go and read the complementary stories in Acts, the book of Acts, that complement that Paul's missionary journeys, kind of help fill in the gaps, in Acts chapter 17, it talks about this time uh, of his visit to Thessal- Thessalonica and he was actually left alone in Athens, and he talks about being alone in Athens. Okay, And that's when he went and preached on Mars Hill and gave that great sermon about uh, you know, the unknown God that, that the Greeks were worshiping. He said, I saw that you have a, a temple over here to the unknown God. And he says, let me tell you who that is. We know who it is. And so he's alone, and it troubled him to be alone. Okay, Twice he says... I couldn't stand it any longer. I'm willing to be left alone. So we sent Timothy, our brother, and the first thing we sent him for was to establish you in your faith. I I think that bears some thinking about. Hadn't they already done that? 
Didn't they already plant a church? Didn't they already share the gospel and spread the faith to them? Yes. But that wasn't enough. Just because you plant a church, just because you share the gospel, just because you gather some people around, that doesn't mean they're established. Okay. Yes, Ken. You have to admire those people, though. They had a local leader that was as green as they were. <clears throat> yeah, they had to have, that's right. They were left without their shepherd, their their apostle, and they had some local leader that had to rise up and help out and take over and keep them together. That's right. That's really something to admire. So in this context, though, there's a Greek word here for this idea of strengthen, and that word is sterixai. Uh, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that because I didn't have time to just go look it up and hear. He has a wonderful little thing with computers today. You can just type it in and say how to pronounce it, and you hear it pronounced in Greek. But I didn't take the time to do that. Sorry about that. It's S-T-E-R, S-T-E-R-I-X-A-I, Sterixai. And this word tells us, when we look at the meaning of that word, it's to strengthen in such a way that it's like building. Okay, It's like it's used by a builder to build something. So the process, and what I think we want to gain from this, what we want to glean from this, is this thought that <clears throat> there is a great need to be established in our faith. In fact, what are we even doing here this morning? Why are we here in Bible study, in deep Bible study? I like to call this deep Bible study because I was sharing with someone over Christmas, not Christmas, but before in the holidays, I was sitting down visiting with some folks and they said, we've heard about your Bible study. And I said, oh yeah? And he said, yeah, it took you two years to go through the Gospel of John? And I said, now two and a half. (laughs) And they said, wow, sometimes you only go through a couple of verses in a whole hour? I said, well, you know, it's probably because I'm very long-winded and I talk a lot in between. But, but yeah, I, say, I want to get to the meaning. Okay, We have to try and put ourselves into that first century mindset. We want to understand their life. We want to understand these Greek words. We want to understand how we... Because that's the only way we're going to be established. So the work of becoming a Christian disciple, an apprentice of Jesus Christ is a program we never graduate from, okay? An apprentice, I love that word, an apprenticeship. I like that word more than I do discipleship because it speaks of, disciple is a learner, it's a student. The literal Greek word for a disciple means to to learn, okay? To come alongside another person and learn. But when you add in this thought of the word apprentice or apprenticeship, it adds in the thought of learning by doing, right? If you so, if you're an apprentice in your career, what are you doing? You're 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 you're, you're you've got somebody who's a master teaching you how to plumb that toilet or whatever. You know, I, I sometimes maybe it's uh, used to a word was used today is like a journeyman. Sometimes you know, your electricians and your plumbers, I think they use that term journeyman. You're, you know. Um, but the idea is you're doing, okay? Well, that's what we're here this morning. We're doing this morning. We're opening the word. We're digging into the, 
the words and the meanings and we're doing because we're apprentices of Jesus. And we need to be established. Paul knew that there was no way the church in Thessalonica or anywhere was ever going to make it long term against the struggles and the, of this world and the powers of darkness if they weren't established. So that's his first reason for writing. And in, in establishing them, he says, to establish you in your faith and to exhort you. There's a dual meaning there. To establish and thereby to exhort. What does it mean to exhort somebody? Encourage. I think it means, we, we think of exhortation as encouraging. And here again, that's why I think the Greek word is important here. Because in English, we sometimes get a little different meaning. If I were just reading this in English and I heard that and to exhort you, I would be with you, Joan. I'd think, well, to encourage them. But the actual Greek word used here is parakleo. Parakleo. We've talked about that word before. Parakleo. Let me write it down here. P-A-R-A-K-L-E-O. Anybody kind of remember that word? Paraclete. Parakleo. In the Gospel of John, we talked about that word a lot. What does that mean? That's a name for the Holy Spirit is... The paraclete, the comforter. Okay, in John chapter 16, when he was talking about, he does, you're right, Alan, come alongside. But the purpose he comes alongside is to comfort. Okay, so this idea of strengthen and comfort is the main purpose that Paul is writing this letter. Okay, and now the second reason he's writing this letter is so that they, they get a real understanding about suffering. Let's see, hear his words again. <clears throat> so verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. That no one be lost by these struggles, in other words. Well, what are these struggles? He doesn't name what these afflictions are. But he does say to them, obviously we told you about the afflictions of being a Christian. And we've told you about, he obviously shared many of his stories as an apostle and their lives out uh, as apprentices for Jesus, trying to build the church. Look what he says. He says, you yourselves know this to be our lot. He's told them. Well, I, that, is that a great selling point? You know, you just you sit down and establish a new church, and you tell them, okay, now, you're really going to have a hard time, but trust me, it's worth it. You know? <laughs> but I think it's important. And, and Jesus... Jesus himself said over and over to people, in this world you will have tribulation, tribulation trials, trouble. But Jesus always added what? That's right. Take heart. I have overcome. That means you will too. In him we overcome. Okay? We don't always overcome in ourselves. Sometimes our tribulation may even take our life. A sickness, a disease, a martyrdom, you know, any one of those things. And it looks like we didn't overcome. But no, we did because we were in Christ. That's the ultimate overcoming. To die is not the enemy. You know, to die is gain, Paul says in the Galatian letter. So it's important for us to see that he wants them to understand suffering is to be expected by Christians. This is no new or deal. Peter talks about it in his epistles. He says, well, you don't be surprised by this fiery ordeal that's coming upon you. You know, 
There's lions out there that are going to roar around and try and over-devour you. Um, those are some of the words of Peter in his epistle. But in, in this context, probably the best words that I've heard Paul write about it were from the Roman letter, his letter to the Romans. We haven't studied Romans in this class yet. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul says these words. He says, Therefore we are heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Christ. That's eight, chapter 8, verse 17. I mean, he just, Paul just says it. Hey, yeah, you want to be an heir with Christ? You are. But you're also going to be an heir to his sufferings. That's the bottom line. So, <clears throat> sometimes that's hard for us to get a hold of. Okay, if, if this were Bible study being done in the Middle East right now, in some Christian home in Iraq or Syria, or, or you know, they, they would they'd get it right away. It is difficult to be a Christian in some parts of the world. Uh, I'm. Oh, we should yes. Of that today. Absolutely. Yes, it's happening. It, you're right. It's years happening. ago, it was U.S. was strong and very Christian uh, leadership, but that's fading away. It is, and that's I think something of of not only concern but but also to be expected. You know, are we willing to pay the price? I, I think that's what I, I was going to start out by saying is I I had a hard time relating to that when I was 22 and really responding to the gospel with trying to respond to the gospel with all my heart, I wasn't suffering. I mean, how, I mean, it was the, what, 1982 or three, I don't remember what year it was when I was that age in 83 or 84. And nobody was persecuting me and all the mistakes in my, and even to this day, nobody's persecuting me. You know, any suffering I have in my life, is really my own stupid mistakes. And believe me, there are many. But I'm not being persecuted because I'm a Christian. You know? So and, and I think that's the way, but there are places where we start to see it happening. Uh, where Christians are the Christianity is falling out of favor in our modern American 21st century culture. It really is. It's no longer you know, it's still written in our Constitution, of course. I mean, Christianity isn't, but this faith in God is. Uh, you know, there's semantic arguments there. But but the point is, it's very difficult to look at our government and our nation and the way we are being uh, run and say that it's, it's uh, really being run on godly principles and godly standards like it was once upon a time. So with that difficulty comes more persecution. It's it's an inevitable thing. And so I think we want to take a word from this book. This wasn't just written to people struggling 2,000 years ago. It's written for every age and every time. And he wants to be sure they're not unsettled by it. Um, this, whole, this whole thought, it's necessary. Now, I want to read to you something that I told you about John Chrysostom, the writer of our prayer. Uh, <clears throat> here's something that he wrote in one of, this is from one of his sermons, one of his homilies. Uh, and and here's what it says. This this is a this is why this chapter is is the pastor's heart. I mean, what is Paul saying? I want to be sure that you're not that you're not giving in because you're hurting so bad. I want to be sure that you're being strong and comforted the way you need to be. I, I want to be sure. Well, listen to what this is the pastor of John Chrysostom, his pastor's heart, when he was writing as the 
bishop of the church in fourth century. He says, quote, there is nothing I love more than you. Here, here a pastor, he's, he's delivering this from a pulpit in a church, okay, in Constantinople. Saying to his congregation, there is nothing I love more than you, not even light itself. I would gladly have my eyes put out 10,000 times over if it were possible by this means to convert your souls. So much is your salvation dearer to me than life itself. This one thing is the burden of my prayers, that I long for your advancement, but that in which I strive with all is, all is this, that I love you, that I am wrapped up in you, that you are my all, father, mother, brethren, children. How would you like to hear that from your pastor? That's pretty beautiful. It's pretty beautiful. He loved them more than life itself. That's the kind of thing that Paul is doing here. We hear that in his heart. As he's, as he's saying to these people, uh, things like, he, he goes on and says it. Well, let me point out a couple of them. He gets the answer. Uh, I sent the third one, and I'm going to show. I'm going to show you that the, some of those those ways in which he feels, just like John Chrysostom did here in just a minute, because he's going to state the third reason. And the third reason he states, I sent that I might know your faith. In verse five. Because it couldn't bear a sin that I might know your faith. He had feared that the tempter, and that means Satan, he feared that Satan was going to steal away their faith because they didn't have a shepherd. <clears throat> but he says, now Timothy has come, and he's brought us the good news of your faith and your love. There's three things he brings in Timothy's good news, and these, these are the three things he brings, good news Timothy brings. Interestingly enough, the good news, that's the word in the Greek, evangelium, the evangel, that's also the word translated in English, gospel. Remember how over and over the good news is the gospel? This is the only time in the New Testament where that word is used, not meaning the gospel. He's actually using it as kind of like synonym to the gospel, that evangelium, okay? But he doesn't mean the gospel. He says, the, the good news of your faith, he says. So Timothy has brought to us the good news of your faith and your love, number one. You have faith and you have love. Number two, that you always remember us kindly and that you long to see us. The good news is, can you back to picture Timothy when he gets back to Paul? He says, Paul, Paul, these people miss us. They dearly long to see us. There was a good connection here. That's a beautiful thing. That's, that's, that's what he says. So one, their faith and their love is still there. They remember us kindly. They long to see us just as much as we long to see them. And then Timothy tells Paul, um, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about your faith, for now we live. You hear that? Now we live. Okay, they had faith and love. I told you there was three things. They had faith and love. They had good memories of them, and they longed to see them again. Those are the three things. I, I didn't delineate those very well for you. 
they remember us kindly meant that they had great memories of their time together. But then in verse 8, Paul says, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. John Chrysostom said, let me read that again. How did he say it to his congregation? He said, This one thing is the burden of my prayers. So much is your salvation dearer to me than life itself. You hear those the comparison. Now, Paul says, now we live. Their faith, Paul is saying, I, my life is not the same if you guys lose your faith. That's what he's saying. My life is not going to be the same if you lose your faith. You're knowing that you really believe in Jesus, that you're trying, knowing that you're really trying, that brings life to me. Do we think that way today? I have to question, do, do, do pastors think that way today? I don't know. I mean, I've been a pastor for over 20 years, and I'd like to believe I feel that way about my flock. I probably don't feel it at the level he does. Well, I don't have a flock, but you're kind of my flock in here. Uh, but, but the point is, the point is, this is necessary. This is pastoral ministry. And Paul is expressing it at its most pure level. Uh, the role of the pastor is to have a heart for the sheep. Okay? Above all else. Now, he goes on from there. And, and he says in, in this verse, verse 10 is a fascinating verse. Verse 9, of course, he, he, he asks the question, what thanksgiving could I give to God for the joy which I feel now for your sake or we feel for your sake? Verse 10, he says, I, we're just praying earnestly night and day that we can see, your face, see you face to face again to supply what is lacking in your faith. I find this a fascinating sentence. To supply what is lacking in their faith. Circle that word supply. What does that word mean? Okay. Now we'll circle that. We're going to come back and I'm going to talk about what this word supply means. Okay. But I want to read on with you. So then he flows into his prayer. When he thinks about needing to, seeing them face to face and supply what's lacking, he flows into his prayer. So now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts. Okay, circle that word establish. Okay, let me write that down here. Establish. Isn't it interesting how these English Bible translators choose so many different words in English to mean the same thing? These are both the same word in the Greek. Okay. Supply, establish, okay? We wouldn't necessarily connect them in English. They're the same word in the Greek here. And the Greek word is, is uh, katartizo, okay? K-A-T-A-R-T-I-Z-O, katartizo. And my yes. Strengthen, strengthen again, okay? Which was a different Greek word up here, which meant to build, okay? So... What does this word mean? Well, we 
when we study the Greek and when we see what it means, we see that it has, there are some, some, con, some connotations here. It's used in the Greek culture and language and writing and literature to talk about uh, things like uh, fishermen needing to mend their nets. Okay? Mend their nets. It's talked about doctors needing, surgeons needing to set bones. I'm, you're talking about Greek literature in the ancient world. Okay? That was the, the word that they would use. That was the verb that they would use there. The doctor needed to put that bone back together. If a politician or a, a governmental officer needed to reconcile groups of people, this is the word that was used. So isn't that interesting? Paul says, I know what God's called me to do, and I need to come there so that I can supply, so that I can, in other words, mend your nets and mend your bones and put your bones back together. To, to, to really establish your faith. Because he's been talking about establishing their faith. Yes, jump My in. My Bible says to fill the gaps in your faith. Fill the gaps. That's an interesting phrase, fill the gaps. In other words, there's something lacking here, right? Um, this is an interesting thought. What is it that's lacking? What are, what are the gaps? What do you think some of the gaps are that are lacking? I mean, they're, they're all of what? Maybe six months old as Christians. Okay, former Jews, some former pagans, Greeks. They're all of maybe six months old in their faith. They're baby Christians, right? So what is lacking? What are some of the gaps, maybe? Well, I think it's... Go ahead, yeah. Their love. Maybe their love isn't strong enough, but it, although he's writing, he's really thankful for their love. Um, well, what are your, think back to when you were six-month baby Christian. Faith. Faith, yeah. Was your faith perfectly strengthened? Um, commitment. Maybe your commitments, yeah. Knowledge. Your knowledge. Knowledge is a big thing. Learning. Why we're here this morning. Traditions come to my mind. Traditions, Traditions. versus... Yeah. It's interesting that you say traditions because in his second Thessalonian letter, he's going to talk about that very thing. Chapter 2 in Second Thessalonians, he actually talks about the tradition. Paul says, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'll just go ahead and give it to you. Pay attention to the traditions we taught you, <laughs> whether in word or in letter. That's what Paul says in Second Thessalonians. So good word. But I, I guess what I want us to see here is this idea that his, he connects it with the next phrase. There's a reason why I have to come and supply all this to you. There's a reason why I have to come and mend your nets and fill your gaps and strengthen your bones because I want the Lord Jesus to, to do this in your heart so that your hearts may be unblameable in holiness. That's right in verse 13. Unblameable, that's a phrase, just, boy, just underline that phrase. Unblameable in holiness. What in the world does that mean? Yours says blameless, okay, same word, unblameable, blameless. He's going to bring that up again at the end of the book in chapter 5, this thought. What does it mean to be unblameable or to be blameless? 
I'm, I'm not sure it means innocent. Or maybe innocent because of lack of maturity. Okay, so if we if we do something wrong in in our legal system, we're used to <clears throat> we're only culpable, which means responsible, if we knew it was wrong, right? Yeah. Um, so for those very reasons, there are sometimes people who are not held accountable, are not punished because they didn't understand their actions, their mental illness, things like that. But can't find fault. So maybe another synonym we're talking about here is faultless. Okay, there's that's a phrase that's used in scripture as well. Faultless, there's a great old hymn, faultless to stand before your throne. Remember that? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking. There's one at the end of the verse that says, faultless to stand before your throne. Right before he goes into that. You know, I can't sing it all. I can't think of what it is right now. But I remember that phrase in there, faultless to stand before you. So this idea of being blameless, Paul says, my goal for you is not that you be perfect. Because I know you're not going to be perfect. But I do want you to be blameless. I do want you to be faultless. I do want you to be unblameless. So that when, and he says this, remember every single chapter of these five chapters, every one of them ends with a nod and a mention to the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So finish the sentence with me. So that he may, he meaning Jesus, may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, my prayer, my earnest prayer is that you be blameless in your holiness. Okay, so two things we can say about that. Number one is there is definitely a call to holiness. Okay, there is without a doubt a call to holiness in Scripture, and he's going to talk about it again over and over in the next two chapters. That what the call to holiness is, and that call to holiness, in that call to holiness, our job isn't to be perfect legalists but to be blameless. Now, I understand Jesus said, be ye perfect. Okay, you could quote that back to me, but Brad, Jesus said, be ye perfect. He said, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, but there we again, we have to go back to what is the perfect? What does that word mean? Okay, this pen right here is doing pretty good this morning. Okay, <laughs> It's working. I'm getting some good blue ink on the board. Okay. Sometimes I come in, pull out the cap, start writing with it. Can't get any ink out of it. Throw it away. Okay. Right now it's blameless. Right now it's perfect. This pen is perfect because it's working for what it was created to do and be. But if it loses its ink, it's not perfect because it's not doing the job it was created to be. That's a very... Poor example, okay? All analogies break down, but that's a very poor example of what it means to be perfect, what Jesus meant. So Jesus said, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We want to be perfect. We can't be God perfect, but we can be God-hearted, perfect in our hearts. This is why John Wesley went over and over. The really, the really great 
rediscovery of John Wesley's ministry and teaching and why we are Wesleyans and follow his teaching is because the whole world had been following the teachings of John Calvin. I mean, the whole Protestant world, okay? And, And the Roman Catholic world. And those worlds were different on this teaching, okay? They had set up a structure of sin in a, such a way that you could not possibly avoid it because of everything that was called sin and meant to be sin and defined to be sin and, and how you had to get the forgiveness for it. And John Wesley came along and said, wait a second, I see in Scripture a call to be holy, a call to be blameless, a call to have a perfect heart, a call to have perfect love. And that's the message of the Wesleyan revival. Okay? Yeah. Good. No, no, don't no, apologize. I can't believe I'm not coughing. I'm really suppressing it up here. No, I just want to be sure you're okay. I, I want us to get, because as we move into chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're going to start talking about Paul's specific teaching. He's going to be telling them what's what gaps. <laughs> okay, here's some of the things. Timothy, you know, Timothy brought back great news, but he also told me some of the things you've been doing as aren't quite right. Okay, that's really not what Christians do. So he's going to talk a little bit about it. But he doesn't scold them. This is the interesting thing about this letter. He doesn't scold them in this letter. He takes baby Christians and he will and he builds them up, he exhorts them, he strengthens them, he comforts them, and he he but he tells them the truth. Okay? Now I, I want to close our time today talking about why this is so important. Because okay, I'm just gonna say it. I don't I don't avoid controversy in this group. i if, if anybody ever listens to all these things, I always told you someday they'd probably uh, the, the church would might just pull my credentials or something and say, that guy's not a good teacher. I think there's a real crisis in the Christian church to, today because we will not, we, we are not in too many places, not completely, there are some pockets, we are not taking a stand for holiness of life and heart against sin. We're just not doing it. What's happening in the overall Christian uh, Christianity that's being preached is a dumbing down mm-hmm. of life and morals and ethics. Things that used to be understood, clearly understood, were always understood as sinful are now being celebrated. Mm-hmm. And we got, I got a problem with that. And I think Paul did too. And we're going to hear about it big time next week. Yes, Joan. I just think of the big split in the Methodist church that just happened. And and it's just another split over human sexuality. And one of the number one things that we're messed up on is the concept of human sexuality. It's just one of the number one issues. It's one of the number one ways Satan is defeating the church today. Whether you're a boy or a girl, you know, if you're Boy, you can say, well, I, I'm a girl. Yeah, we are so messed up in our culture today. See, here's the thing. I want you to hear me carefully. Hear me really carefully. I am not anti or anti-homosexual. I'm not, I'm not, I don't hate homosexuals. I'm not mad at them. I'm not, I, I don't think they should be 
shunned. I don't think that they should be, uh, what do you want to word the word? I'm persecuted. persecuted. I don't think they should be discriminated against any more than every single person in the world who's ever sinned sexually as a heterosexual. Okay? It's all sin if it's done outside the boundaries of what God ordained and intended, which is through one man, one woman. Okay? Now, so I'm not, I'm not like this guy up in Topeka who calls him horrible names and demonstrates against homosexuals. And because that was done in the name of Christianity, all too often over the last hundred years, Christianity, I mean, pe- people do label us as uh, homophobic and all these other things. I, I'm telling you, it couldn't be, I couldn't be more different from that. I, lo- I have friends that are homosexuals, and I love them as a friend. But here's the point. There, I don't, because I do love them as a friend, doesn't mean I have to say that their sin is now normal. Okay. Be, that now, okay, it really never was sin. You're right. Now it's just normal. Okay? I, I can't do that with theft. Right. I can't do it with uh, stealing. I, I can't do it with any sin. Sin is sin. There is no new sin under the earth, under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches mm-hmm. us. But we don't have to celebrate it. But like we don't. Seem to be wanting to do that. Exactly. And I, and I really, really believe we've created our own monster. I believe that the churches of the modern era have created this monster because they failed to love and accept people as the sinners that they were and failed to teach them the truth. Isn't it our job as representatives of Christ? Because this problem is rampant with the younger generations, like 19, 20. Sierra has dear friends that are that way. And she said, Mama, they're mean to them. And they think Christians are mean. And I said, no, we're not. It's our job to love them. I said, Jesus would be right there. He would be loving you. We don't have to agree with their behavior. I don't agree with a, a gunman that walks in with a gun. Right. But to me, showing them Christ's love is going to get them to accept the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit can work on their inside. Absolutely. And slowly change them. Absolutely. It's the unconditional agape love, and the younger ones are not getting it. Well, it's a challenge, a great challenge. Yes, Debbie? Oh, I, just, oh no. I was just thinking, um, and maybe you can explain this better. I don't know if I really understand, but okay. and I can't remember who it was that was being interviewed, but it was a German, and they were asking him... How did the Christians allow the Nazis to come into Germany and persecute the Jews? Right. And he, right. he said, uh, cheap grace. Yeah. We started to allow cheap grace. Right. And he said that's happening today in the United States. That's exactly right. Uh, that is exactly right. What if Christian people would have stood up to the movements of Adolf Hitler and his government? He was a He was a publicly legitimately elected leader of the nation of Germany and made no, it wasn't a secret that he was anti-Semitic. It wasn't a secret that he thought his race was superior. He ran on it and they celebrate, and Christian people even, if they didn't celebrate it, they didn't stand up against it. Watched a movie, Corbin and I watched a movie uh, this week 
that I'd never seen. And because uh, I never, I thought about it because of this. This topic is in the movie. It, the movie came out in 1965, and it was nominated for Best Picture of the Year. Didn't win, but it won some other awards uh, at the Oscars. Called Ship of Fools. How many of you remember that movie? Okay. Ship of Fools. Anybody? That. You've heard that term. You know the name. It's really a good movie. It's black and white. Uh, excellent movie. Uh, and it's, it's, it's this, and that's the theme that runs through it. It's a German ship leaving Mexico on its way back to Germany, 26-day tour. And, and it, I don't want to give away the whole movie, but it's the ship of all these different looks at different people's lives. And the big theme, there's a couple of Jews on the boat, and they're German. And this is a German boat with German officers, and there's German people, but there's a lot of other people. They stop along the way and pick up a whole bunch of Hispanics in Cuba, and they're shipping them back to Spain. And it, it, it just, it, you, the theme throughout it, and there's a couple of really strong themes, and he talks about the, the, the fact that everybody's just living these foolish lives, and they're all missing the point, and especially this Jewish one who doesn't realize what's about to happen. Yes? That's right. He was just rising to power in 1935. That's right. So, you know what? I, I though I bring all that up. I, the reason I bring that up is not to just be controversial. I don't want to do that. I want us to think two things this morning. Just like Paul did, he reminded them, "Hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. There is a second coming of Jesus." He reminds them at the end of every chapter, and when he does. And it could be any time. Be ready. And to be ready means to be blameless in your faith. And if you hate anyone, that is not being blameless. You hate homosexuals, that is not being blameless. You hate people that are of a different race or color, that is not being blameless. We must love everyone. All men, he said it right there. For your love, earlier he said... And in verse 12, to love one another and all men. He means everyone. Everyone of humanity, the whole shebang. Yes, Rhonda. I just think, I mean, to me it saddens me, you know, to see people like that. Um, and the Sonic by our house, yeah. I go there and there's um, a guy that's wanting to be a girl and tries talking yeah. like a girl and wears pink and stuff and I don't know I I mean I I, I see it as it's just pitiful. it's it's sad and it makes yeah. me sad you know I I hurt for them because they're so lost and you know? and you and begin to think I agree with you and and I've seen it we we've run into it more and more in a few places we go and in, in that in that setting when you meet people like that you you there's two things that can happen in your heart. You can condemn. Oh wow, I can't believe that. Look at that person. Crazy. Stupid. You could you could do that. Or you could be moved with pity. And in that pity you find love. And in that love you pray. And you and then you begin to ask yourself, what angst, what harm, what hurt heartache, what happened in their life to cause them to be so confused? And you know what? That that's the what we need to be asking. That's what we need to be thinking, because I guarantee you, there's a story there. Mm-hmm. Something has hurt them. Yes. 
then my big question after that even is, what could I say? What could I do? You know, I, I guess besides pray, is there anything I can do? You, 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 the greatest, first, number one, the greatest thing any of us can ever do is to pray. Absolutely. That's why I spend so much time teaching about prayer. Prayer is everything. Mm-hmm. Okay? If you didn't take my class on prayer, it's on the podcast. There's six classes, six or seven, called Unlocking the Mystery of Prayer. Prayer is everything. Prayer is the greatest work we can do. Prayer, our prayers actually determine what's going to happen in our world. Okay? I don't have time to explain all that and unlock it for you, but just take it. Listen to the class. Our prayers make a difference in God's providential plan for what's going to happen in our world. We, we actually participate in God shaping our world when we pray. So, prayer. And the other thing you can do, Joan, is to love. Just love. Don't look at them differently. Don't let them see a hint of your, because they're not going to listen to you if you try and teach them, okay? That you first got to love people. That's the whole thing. If people sense there's love in you and your heart for them. Just, unconditional means for the way they are. Got to love them the way they are. And if they sense anything other than that, they're never going to see Jesus in us. Yes. We have um, some good friends that used to go to church here, and her and I... Um, have been friends for a long, long time, and they adopted a little girl, and um, this was years ago that they adopted her, and um, they live in California now, but anyway, um, um, they ended up adopting another girl, and she's from China, but the one they adopted early on, she decided she wanted to be a boy, and um, and they have raised her in a Christian home, but she is adopted, um, doesn't have, her family doesn't have anything to do with her, but she has this family, yeah. but it broke the parents to right. pieces. But and, and always will, but they still love, you know, and they're doing and their best. they still try to, um, you know, share the love of right. Jesus, and that, it, that it's not right, but um, they still love her. Mm-hmm. But, yes. Um, no, no, I'm done. You go ahead. What about, what about uh, these people coming, uh, coming uh, different countries and lock them up in a dog cage? Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. That's, that's... And I heard uh, they put babies in the deep freeze. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. Tore, tore the baby out of the parents' arms oh. put them in the deep freeze. There's no, de- there's, no de- there's no bottom to that pit of human depravity. Okay, it's horrible, the evils that mankind can fall to. But, but let, let me finish our time together because it's, it's top of the hour. But I want I want, I got to leave with this thought. Okay, I need to say this. As, as respects this whole challenge with transgenderism and human sexuality and homosexuality, all of this, it's, I'm going to leave the door open. Maybe it's possible. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a geneticist. Maybe it's possible that in the human condition, a person can be born with some genetic malformation that makes them lean that way. Okay? 
It's not just a conscious decision that people make. I really believe that's possible. But just because that's possible doesn't make it right. It's possible that I could be raised in an environment and born with it. I mean, I'm automatically born wanting to steal. Yeah, it's human nature. Do you know it's human nature to want to take stuff? You don't have to teach a child to disobey. You don't have to teach a child to take something that's not theirs. You see? But that doesn't make it right because it's part of our fallen nature. Humanity in this world is born with a fallen nature, and we must learn to be good. And that's why in chapter 4, the apostle is going to start teaching them ethics. He's going to teach them truth and ethics. So let us open our hearts next week and learn about ethics. And Christian ethics, because Christian ethics are not being taught in our pulpits these days. And it's a shame. Too often. Okay. Well, if I didn't get in too deep of trouble, you'll come back next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Yes, I want to, one more thought. Yes. Yes. So they had to reschedule the one on the 60. Please, please pray for Sylvia to, I mean, she really wants to be here, but can't be here right now. Of course, she had recovered from the strokes and still strengthening from that. And this has to be addressed in this carotid. So please pray for God's touch upon her. Thank you for bringing that up. Let's close the word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your holy scriptures and that we have the privilege to look into them and hear the words of our prayer in the opening and lighten our hearts, illumine our hearts, teach us your commandments, uh, oh Father, so that we would walk in them. And so now we do lift Sylvia and we think of all those who are hurting and struggling uh, amongst us, but, but even beyond that, just everyone in humanity that's hurting and struggling. Help us to be the light of Christ to the world around us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord, your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today, and may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as He forms His Spirit within you.